Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Such courage. Um, yeah, it's just one of those days where you're just thankful to be a part of this church family. You guys just all crush it, and it's exciting. Um, I, I, I honestly can't contain, I know I'm trying, and I have a little bit of coffee, but I am like so excited to go through this book. Uh, if you've read Matthew before, um, it's a really unique gospel. Uh, if you haven't, I, I promise you that there's going to be times where you're just going to be like, I cannot believe how intricate and beautiful this is. And so I want to talk about that. Uh, but first, one of the things I wanted to do was kind of show you a bit of a, a survey of Matthew. So if you look, we're talking about today and over the next few weeks, the origins of Jesus. That's, he read the genealogy. That's chapters one through three. And then Matthew is going to take five other sections, uh, which are kind of the bulk of the book. And there are five teaching sections, and they all have different themes in them. And then the last section is the cross and resurrection, which is kind of ironic because we just celebrated that last week. So if you're wondering, no, it's not Christmas when we're talking about the birth of Jesus, because uh, we're just starting from the beginning and we're going the whole way through. But um, I, want, I want to get a little bit into the nitty-gritty for just a little bit, because Matthew, and understanding the foundation, is going to help us sev- over the ne- next several weeks. So first off, Matthew, who is Matthew? What makes him unique? If you know, uh, if you maybe read the, the front of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's four eyewitness gospel accounts that have written about the story of Jesus. Matthew, I'll show you this graph up here. It kind of gives you the four different gospels. Uh, they each write maybe to a different specific people. They focus on Jesus as a specific role. Uh, they have a different method or approach. And then they feature specific things. Discourses is a fancy name for teachings. So it's Jesus teaching long periods of time. Uh, and so we're, we're just centering in on Matthew and the writer himself, who is most scholars would all agree that it is Matthew the Levite, who was a tax collector. Uh, if you've ever heard, he's not IRS. It's a little less modern than that. Um, he doesn't call you or send you mail saying you owe money. Uh, they would show up at your house or he'd have a booth. And he was what was called a portator, which was a, uh, I'll just explain it this way. It says Roman taxes being usually in the hands of Roman knights. Romans were overseeing the area of Jerusalem and they would make them pay taxes. Uh, they were portators having to pay a fixed sum for the privilege of collecting um, taxes from people. And so what they would do is they had to collect a fixed tax, and so they squeezed people for their own income. So they was kind of corrupt. But what's interesting is they typically did this from uh, wealthier people because they'd make more money. It's, it doesn't make any sense to squeeze an extra penny or two out of poor people, but he would typically squeeze them from rich people. So he, he was probably hated by the middle class and the rich, uh, probably actually fit along with the lower class, which is what Jesus does when he draws his disciples in. He pretty much picks the lowest of the low in every different social area, and he puts them all together and sees how they work. And so uh, Matthew was probably a little bit wealthy because of his job, but he was also hated by the people who would have been his equals. It's like living in a fancy neighborhood, but everyone hating you as your neighbor. Uh, so it's, you feel very lonely. And, uh, and so that's Matthew. The audience who he's writing to is um, Jews. Now, we, we, we kind of forget Matthew is writing this gospel not like the day after Jesus resurrects. He's not just sitting down and writing it. He's writing it several decades later. And so he is writing to Jews who are still going to the synagogue, which was the church of the Jewish people at the time. And he's kind of helping them wrestle with the, the, the tension and the validity of Christ, 
his commands and teachings and what it means to follow him, uh, dealing with all this different belief. And so the audience is, is actually written to Jews. Now you're saying, well, Trey, we're reading it right now. Aren't we the audience? That's actually not the case. We read it from that perspective, and then we take that through the lens of our, of our lives, our context, and we, that's how we understand it. But if we don't first understand what Matthew meant to the Jews, then we're going to have a really hard time actually understanding what he meant. And that's kind of why we, whenever you know, I study the, the Bible and I, I uh, read commentaries and things like that, that's what, we're, that's what I'm doing. I'm basically taking these well-world-renowned uh, scholars that usually read five or six and they all have these different studies of the language, of the historical context, of all this type of stuff, right? I haven't lived in first century Palestine. And they take all that, and they, the author and his intent, they put that, and then we synthesize that into what we are living today in 2021 in America, in Columbus. And so that's what we do. But the, the letter, as we read it, we cannot forget who it's written to. The date is unique. Uh, most scholars would say 80 to 90 AD. So that's, that's probably several decades after Jesus had died and resurrected, and so they waited a while to do that. Um, in terms of your wondering, like, what's the validity of this? Like, is there just like one letter that they found and they think it's the Bible? There's 20 manuscripts written in Greek around the time it was written, and then there's thousands of copies. So if you're wondering about the validity of it, it's, uh, you can study it for a while, but it's extremely uh, sought after and well-known in terms of Matthew's gospel. Uh, and the content is, is probably the most unique part. If you've ever uh, decided to read all four Gospels, you'll probably notice that some of them say the same things. In fact, some of them say almost the exact same thing. That's what we call uh, the synoptic Gospels. That's just a fancy word for in sync, not the band, but um, in sync, meaning the three, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all essentially have different ways in which they've, they've written together, if you will. There's different theories on how that happened. Most would say Mark wrote, and then Matthew and Luke kind of took from Mark's story that they knew, and then they added their own pieces to it because they had different focuses. And then John is just out in left field. He's, he's a four on the Enneagram, and he just does his own thing. Uh, but if you're ever wondering, you could read Mark and read literally the exact same story in a different part of Matthew or even Luke. So that's important to notice. Um, but But Matthew, uh, other than his intent for the Jewish people, because you're, you're probably like, all right, well, I'm spacing out for the next year because it's just for Jewish people, so whatever. But what, he, what he's doing, though, it's, just, it's really simple, but it's extremely profound, is he's basically taking the story of Jesus, who is not in Jerusalem, he's in Galilee, he's doing his journey all throughout where he's going, and then he ends up and culminates in, in Jerusalem. Now, we know that Jesus had been in Jerusalem several times before the end of Matthew, but in his story, he's taking him the whole way there, and he's basically showing all this tension and what we talked about in Palm Sunday and Easter, the perfect storm in Jerusalem. And what he's really doing, his, his whole goal, I think Matthew's entire goal as we read it, is he's just putting this man in front of you, Jesus of Nazareth, and he's just showing you, he's kind of just spinning Jesus, and he's showing you all these different sides of Jesus. And what his goal is, is taking what the Jews had known and showing them who Jesus truly is, how he's fulfilling it, and how he's way better. And that's why he, they break it up into five, like five distinct chunks of Matthew because they had known the Torah, which is their, their laws and rules God gave them. Uh, that was five books. And so he's basically taking those. He says, hey, we got a new five, and here's where they are, and they're great. And so Matthew is brilliant in the way that he constructs this book. And what I, what I want to challenge you as we read this, as you study it, if you have a notebook, you start taking notes. Um, is, is in, if you're new and you've never read Matthew, this is your first time here and first time reading Matthew, or you maybe haven't read Matthew in a long time, is as you read Matthew, I promise you, as we get to know who the person Jesus is, that you will know more about yourself. Now, that's actually exciting. It's also dangerous. It's why many of you can't be alone in a room for too long, because you start to think about the things that you want to avoid. 
And, and Matthew will do this to you. In fact, um, there's a, one of my uh, uh, favorite quotes in relation to Matthew is by a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr. And he says, God made us in his image, but we've been really good at returning the favor. God made us in his image, but we've been really good at returning the favor. And what he means by that is we, we, we learn about Jesus, we read the Gospels and things like that, but we, we take them and then we, we project on what we think Jesus should be doing, who we should look like on, on ourselves. We basically say, God, you made us in our image, but we made Jesus in our image. And, and he's basically saying we do this all the time. We don't let the text say what the text wants to say, and we want to kind of justify our, our life, our approach, our political camp, whatever it may be, and we just take things and we just hold on to them and we bring our own emotional and baggage and all that into it. So us going through this book is actually, I think, in some ways a discipline as a church because we're reading the genealogy. We're reading passages that are difficult. We are going through it in such a way that you will have to stare face to face with Jesus and it will, it will reveal things about yourself. The best example I have is when I got married, I thought I was pretty great and then pretty quickly I realized I wasn't so great. Because the more you get to know someone, the more you become intimately involved with them and you get to know their emotions and their, their upbringing and all these type of things, you realize more about yourself as well. And Jesus will do this for you if you allow him uh, over the next several weeks. And so I want to get into it if you're ready. Yeah. Are we ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. So I'm not going to spare you. I'm not going to... Stephen did such a good job with the genealogy. So I'm, I'm not going to read all the names again, but I will... I, I'm going to go kind of verse through verses and just take notes with you guys on some of this stuff that uh, is in Matthew. Uh, the first phrase in your Bible, we're reading the Net Bible. So if you wanted to read the same one in your phone, you can do that. We're, we're going to have... We're not going to have the text up on the screen when I teach because we want you either in the Bible, on your phone, or you can just listen. Um, and you can also put your bookmark there because we're going to be here for a while. Uh, Matthew 1, though... It, it, it literally says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, some versions you have might not actually say genealogy. They might, uh, they might say the origin, the book of origin. That's what we're talking about for the next three chapters is origins. And the origin is probably better understood because when you know about origin, it has more attached to it than just your birth story. If you say, what's your family of origin? You're not just talking about, oh, you were born on this day in this hospital. You're talking about your family and the baggage they've given you and the life that maybe you've lived. And so the origin of Jesus is this long genealogy. It's giving us information about Jesus' family that's incredibly important. It's also incredibly provocative. Remember that Matthew is writing this. It's being read typically orally to the Jewish people who are following Jesus in these synagogues. And he starts off and he basically says, in the beginning, in the Genesis, the the Greek word for genealogy or origin is, is Genesis, which if you've ever read the first page of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, and it's known as Genesis, the book of Genesis. And so Matthew is being pretty provocative here, saying, hey, remember that, like, the books you have memorized that you have to know called the Torah and the beginning of it? Well, I got a new one for you, and we're going to start it off the same way. It's kind of showing that, like, hey, the old's gone, the new's here. And Matthew does this by, by using the same word. It's actually brilliant. Now, the interesting thing um, about, right after that, is he says, of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, I'm going to spare you tons of info and details if you haven't really read the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, the five books they would know in the front, is that um, Abraham was originally where God made his first promise to to Abraham, and he was basically to be a uh, a seed for many nations. Basically, through Abraham, God would create this nation that would be the, the image bearers and glorification of God to the rest of the world. 
Not that all humans aren't image bearers, but that they were going to follow God's laws. He was going to be with them, and people will be able to see the beauty of God through his people. And so through Abraham, they have the Israelites, and they have all those different stories of the Red Sea and the plagues and all that kind of stuff. That's all in the Old Testament. And then you have the son of David. Now, David was the guy we typically know, maybe killed Goliath, also Bathsheba, committed adultery, murdered her husband. He's also in here. And David also got a promise from God. Uh, it's, it's covenant, which is like a promise. And in that, God said, from your lineage, you, like, we will have the Messiah, essentially. Now, what's unique is, is Jesus isn't actually the son of David. David was, if you read the, read the genealogy, David was, you know, in, in, in the later third, but he's not like right before Jesus. So how is Jesus the son of David? In fact, David had a son, Solomon, who's in there, and that's way in the middle. So what is that saying? Well, in this time, the idea of son was, was not always just like, it's my son, but it was a term of, of intimacy and endearment, saying from the lineage, your son will be Jesus. In fact, when you go down to verse 17, it, it kind of talked about there's 14 generations from here and here, and there's 14 from there, and there's 14 from there. I don't know if, you've, if you like fact-checking, but if you read this, there's actually not 14 in each of those. There's, uh, I think there's like 12, and then 11, and then 13, or something like that, or 14. I can't remember exactly, but if you read those names that you were keeping track while Stephen was reading, uh, they're not 14, 14, and 14. So what's going on here? We have an error in the Bible, right? That's what you think. Matthew, and there's several different scholars that, that have different opinions on what 14 means, and, and, and at this time, numbers were really, really important. But what he's kind of showing here is the fulfillment of each generation was a time where God was was revealing himself in such a way through this lineage, and they're all complete, meaning they are all fully leading up to the story of Jesus we have now. Now, that was like my super quick intro, but if you were Jewish, you would know all these names. I mean, you would know the story. In fact, you would, you would be listening with an ear being like, this guy's starting off pretty strong. He's comparing to Genesis, Genesis is what, how they would say. So what's so unique about this, this genealogy? I promise I'm not going to tell you everybody's story because that would be that'd be the whole Bible. But but what is so unique in verses two through sixteen is if you look closely, there are four women's names listed in the genealogies. Now nowadays we're like that's great. Back then that was like very provocative and very actually um, very tense to have women mentioned in the genealogy. Women weren't really had a lot of status back then, and so these four women though have incredible stories to continue this lineage. And so I, all I want to pull from this before we move on is remembering that even from the start of Jesus' birth, even through his family, his family line, that it is full of men and women who are trying to be faithful to God but just fail miserably. All of these people fail miserably. And we forget that, that Jesus is so in love with sinners that he came from, in the way that he could, a family line of sinners. And I just think about that, and I think about he could have just had, they could have not cared about lineage. He could have just, in fact, he didn't even need to be born through Mary. He could have just kind of appeared, like, I don't know, an infant in the wilderness, or he just became a teenager and he was just alive, right? It didn't need to be this way, and the way it is this way is we see that these women who had incredible things and did incredible things of faith in the Old Testament are included because God is for the outcast, God is for the sinners, and he's embedding his family of origin into the story of him coming for sinners. So, 1 through 17 is, is this reminder. It's this really dense reminder of the entire story of God and how he's brought them through different periods of life. And we cannot forget that. So I want to jump to now the birth story. So that's the genealogy. 
The birth story is unique, and this is, this is not Christmas, so we don't have a manger or any Christmas songs. I thought about throwing a Christmas song for fun, but I think it would have gotten weird like a minute in. So uh, we're just going to save you from that. Christmas is like one month a year, you know. So um, unless you're someone who listens to it now, I don't know. That's kind of weird. But uh, the birth of Jesus happens this way. Now, again, the same word, genesis, is in here in the Greek. You probably have it translated birth, but it is now the birth of him. So it was the, the origination of him, the lineage that has been now arriving, and now it is Jesus' birth story. Now, this is a really fascinating story. Um, I'm just going to kind of go through the Cliff Notes version. But in verse 1, it, it's, it's remembering, it's continuing the, the genesis here of like, here's his practical like birth and how it happened. But he's born in Nazareth, which is... Um, or sorry, sorry, not born in that. He's born in Bethlehem, but his mom and his dad are from Nazareth, which is a very small village, like 500 people. So like their graduating class was like six, you know? <laughs> so I was like, so they knew each other, right? It wasn't like, oh, like who's that? It's like, no, that's Mary. Like that's who that is. It's one of, you get to pick one of the four women to marry. Like that's all you get, right? So Joseph and Mary knew each other. Uh, they were, I'm giving you a spoiler, but uh, they were, uh, they were engaged in verse 18, we'll just jump in there, verse 18. And the way engagement worked back then was you were essentially married when you were engaged. Nowadays, you could just sell the ring on eBay and be done and whatever. But back then, when you were engaged, you were basically married. The only thing you were waiting for was the husband to be able to maybe have a place of his own or, or whatever, hold down a fort in a, such a way that the, the wife could then like, be supported in that. So if you, you know, got engaged, Joseph's probably trying to save up some money for a place or whatever, and then she would move in and then they consummate, and then they're married. But there's no, like, backing out once you're engaged. It's not like today where it's just, like, The Bachelor, and, like, half the time they never make it. It's like, oh, you're, like, this is it. Like, you're married, you know? And because and what we know that, because if you look a little bit later, in verse 19, it says he intended to divorce her privately. Divorce, they weren't married. In this culture, you basically were. It was very serious. And so... Mary and Joseph, like I said, small town. To imagine being the, the pregnant one, like from the Holy Spirit in a small town of 500. Like that goes around so quick. And um, she's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I'm, I'm, I love the Bible and I love God, but this is weird, like thinking about this. Like you're telling me that, you're, that your belief is that the Holy Spirit impregnated this woman and that then Jesus came from that. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And, and what's so important here, and if you read and you study this and you really dig in, you really dig in, is that this story is not about sex. And we miss that. We think, oh, it's like the Holy Spirit impregnating Mary, because we know how, how you make babies as humans, right? We're like, this is how you do it, and we know. But it's not about sex. In fact, what's, what's actually compelling to this is most mythologies and gods this time, it was about sex. It was about this God having sex with this human and then creating this whatever, semi-divine thing or whatever it may be. That was the typical story. But in this instance, it's not about sex at all. It's about just kind of this miraculous, like, literally appearing a, a pre-fertilized egg into Mary. Like, that is, that is kind of the miracle that we see, like, poof, kind of like. And it's weird, but whenever we get into the, the reason of why, which is kind of later, later um, discussion, we know that this is like, this is the way that God wanted it in, in showing a creation of a new thing that was fully his, his um, job and his role and his power. Same day, whenever we see the earth created, it is God and his voice speaking and making it happen through miracle. And it is in the same way Jesus is coming fully through God and is God in that. So verse 20, 
Joseph's pretty, pretty disturbed. I mean, I don't, can you imagine? Like, you're in, like, seventh, eighth grade because they're young at this time, and, and your, your girlfriend's like, hey, I just want to let you know, like, I am pregnant, but I didn't do anything with anyone. What are you going to think? I mean, come on, town of 500. You're going to be like, you, it was Steve, wasn't it? You know, I mean, there's only so many other people. And he's like, but he's going to be polite about it because he could have did it publicly. They actually could have had rights to kill her at this time, but he, he wanted to do it privately. Then an angel of the Lord comes in verse 20, Joseph's son of David. See, this is all planned out. It's beautiful. Son of David, he's a part of the lineage. He marries, in, marries Mary, and then he's in the lineage. Uh, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So then the angel's like, you're, you're good, trust me. You're all right. Like, this was real, right? And, and so at the end of that, Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is kind of the the first thing Matthew just throws in the face of the, the listening Jews is you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Notice how it doesn't say the whole world, not yet. Right now it's his people, who are his people? So remember the Old Testament, we have all these characters, the genealogy, the Jewish people are listening because they have, they have had origins passed down to them as kids. We have in the garden, God uh, created Adam and Eve as like, as this humanity, right? And, and how do they do pass or fail with God? Fail, hardcore, pretty quick. Chapter three, I mean, pretty quick, fail. Okay. And then he, and then they out of the garden and then, and then through them, you know, he creates, uh, or there's, they grow and they, um, they have dominion over the earth. They, they um, advance more people. And then you have uh, Abraham, and then he promises Abraham. How does Abraham do? Pass, fail. Medium. <laughs> Pretty much fail, but uh, remember, he couldn't have a child. He didn't really trust God, in it, and then he went through his own kind of ideas. Um, but God still uses him, because this is a story God uses broken people. Fail. And then, after Abraham, we have, um, sorry, yeah, we have, you know, a ton of lineage. I'm just kind of skipping, but uh, then all of a sudden the Israelites are free and they're in their own territory that God had given them. And then they decide, you know what? We want some kings like everyone else. How did the kings do? Pass or fail? Fail hard. You know what? They did the three things God told them not to do. They did all, all of them. And Solomon did it the most. And he's like the wisest guy in the Bible, right? Fail hard. At some point, you're pretty discouraged. If I was God, I was like, these people just can't get it right. Fail, fail, fail. Okay. All the Jews knew this. They knew this. And so when he says save, people from, save his people from their sins, the Jewish people knew that God had a plan that was going to happen for all of these people. And it's, it's going to restore through the kings, the prophets, uh, Abraham, Moses even, all these people into Adam and Eve. He's going to, through, through Israel, the sacrifice through Israel will restore all of humanity. Because remember, Israel is the symbol of God's flourishing among people. He's going to restore all of this back to humanity. And, and so immediately, verse 21, we're talking about sins. I mean, it's like not, it doesn't even take that long. We're not even really in the story yet. And he's like, he's going to save you from your sins. In fact, the word Jesus in Greek is Jesus with a Y. We put it with a G or a J because we're English. The Hebrew of that word is, uh, is Yehoshua, which was then shortened to Yeshua. But what that means, similar to Joshua, is that Yahweh saves. That's what the name means. People's meanings of their names typically led to the story of their life. It was very powerful uh, back in those days. And, and his name means Yahweh saves. 
Now, this is really confusing because Yahweh, you're like, who's Yahweh? Yahweh is just the name of God in the Old Testament. That was what the Jewish people called him was Yahweh. It's a whole other story, but Yahweh was the name. And they're waiting for Yahweh to come save their people. In fact, they're waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one, to come save them of, of the destruction, to restore the, the, the kingdom in the way they would, they would see God, they think, doing it. And they're waiting and they're waiting. And Jews are hearing this story of Jesus and saying, okay, this is the Messiah then that we've been waiting for, but they're skeptical. In fact, they're even more skeptical because they're confused because is Yahweh going to save his people or Yahweh saves? Does that make sense? Is God or Jesus, is Yahweh or Yahweh saves going to save his people? And it's, 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 it's a wordplay, if you, if you don't realize it. It's yes to both because God is God the Father, God is God the Son, Jesus. So God is saving his people through Yahweh saves. Yahweh is saving his people through Yahweh saves. It's, it's, it's brilliant in the meaning of his name in the word and then, and then like kind of being confused about this. And, and we ask, who is he saving? Not the whole world yet. But, but I kind of just want to get a, a little bit, I want to spend a little bit of time on the idea of sin here because sin is something we hate talking about. In fact, um, you know, it's, it's hard for us to, in the church, we, we don't even really like talking about it because it makes us feel dirty and messy. But in reality, sin is, is what gives this whole sacrifice deep purpose. And, and sin is, and this is just the simplest sense, because there's sin, there's transgressions, there's iniquity, there's a bunch of different components. But sin, is, in this case, is the moral failure of those people, remember? Fail, 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 fail. Sin, right? Against God is, is the best way to describe it. Um, and, and we have that today. Now, I, I, I like to just explain this simply, but if you maybe disagree that we don't have sin nature, that's totally fine, but I just, like I said, have a kid, and like within a year, you'll find out pretty quick, like, you didn't teach them how to do that really mean thing they did. And, and even like myself, I set it to do list of like, ways for Trey to get better, and like, just fail hardcore. Like, uh, it, I just, I don't know, and you look at the world around you, the world is, you could be like, the world's pretty good, but like, you go to other countries, and you're like, never mind, like, there's some countries we can't even go to right now in the world. The world is not doing as good as we might think it is. America maybe is doing good, but the world is not in a good place. And then what else is, not only do we not sometimes believe sin is as deep as it is, or it's rooted in as many things as we do, is we, we and we, we, don't, we don't even, we don't not only minimize it, we, we pervert it, meaning we, we, we take, it means to literally alter something from its, its original course. So it's like, not only do we like, be like, ah, it's not only really that bad, but we, we start to justify the things that might be in line with that because we don't we're like, ah, it's, it's not really that bad. Or did God really say that? Did God really say that? In fact, the first sin in the Bible, Genesis 3, the serpent's question is, is it really true that God said that? That's the first question. That's how he deceives. Did God really say that? Did he really mean, is that really what he meant in the Bible? You should be able to do that. He didn't really mean that. That's literally how, this, how sin starts. And so we, we see this sin in, in Matthew 21. He's cutting right to it, and he's just calling them all, he's calling the Jews like right where they are, and this sin that it needs to be saved from. And in our own lives and our own hearts, if we read Matthew, I believe that we are deeply in sin. And, and we, we try to basically be God, because that's what sin is. Sin is us being, trying to do not God's way, our own way. And we're terrible at it. We, we make terrible gods. If, if somebody put me in charge of the world, I would do a terrible job. <laughs> I just can't even imagine how quickly I would fail. And so the first point, there's a couple of claims that, that Matthew's making in the beginning of this book. The first one is that Jesus is Yahweh saves. And Yahweh saves us from our sin. That's like the first claim. So when you're writing that down and you see the word Jesus 
and you know it means Yahweh saves. God is going to save his people through God, Jesus, Yahweh saves. Now, I, I want to take just a moment and talk about the sin in relation to Jesus here. A lot of people in today's modern world, and a lot of people I'm around, actually, a lot of circles that I'm in really love the idea of humanism. And humanism, if you, if you haven't really heard of it, you might even probably know of it, you just didn't know it was called that, is it's, the definition is that we should attach prime importance to the capability of human goodness, growth and rationalization, uh, then to a divine being. Basically, it's the idea that humans are capable of becoming the good that we need in the world for human flourishing forever. That is the idea of humanism. Now, this is super popular because uh, it's encouraging. Just be kind. You do the random act of kindness. You kind of give some money to the poor and, and whatever, right? And you just try to make the world just. And it seems like a great idea. It's very idealistic, and it's very comfortable. You can sit in your chair in your apartment, and you can believe that, and you don't have to deal with the, the repercussions of that on a worldly, worldly uh, thing. But, but think about this, and I'm just going to have one poke at it because there's several I could do. But the, the, main, the main thing I would throw out about humanism is who defines what's good? Who defines in humanism what is good and who defines what is bad? In fact, what if, it's, what if good for someone is bad for someone else? Then what do we do? Then we just get to pick who's better, who gets to have the better thing. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Like, like a, here's an example. A $3 t-shirt is good for me. It's bad for the person who probably had to be a slave to make that for me to cost $3. If you love the 10, 10 chicken nuggets for $1 at Burger King, I think it is, it's, you think it's good for you because it's a dollar. <laughs> it's also bad because there's no way 10 chicken nuggets should cost a dollar. <laughs> it, and I, I wrote this, it's kind of brutal, but... The bad is the torturous exploitation of companies tarnishing and sucking dry the beauty of creation and earth through the means of animals for their own greed. You're like, wow, I don't want those chicken nuggets anymore. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, it's good for who, bad for who. It's, there's, there, you can't just make good and be like, I'm the good king, and this is the way it is. And so you might disagree with that, with those points, which is actually the point of it. We all disagree on those points, on what's good and what's bad. But the last thing I, I want to throw out is, is just this idea in a world, a worldly idea, because we're so close, we're just so close-minded as, as Americans sometimes. America is a prime example in the world of pro-equality in several different ways, but in this, in one specific instance, is for women's rights. We believe that women are equal to men, and that's great, and they should be paid the same, they should be able to vote, all these type of things, right? We're cutting edge compared to a lot of countries still in the world, and this is not the this is not the case in, in majority areas in the world. In fact, in a book uh, by the name of Jonathan Haidt, he does this an experiment. And he took uh, uh, Indian kids and American kids, and he asked them a set of questions. And, uh, and he asked which ones were wrong and which ones were socially acceptable. And so here's, here's one of the ones they asked him. This is the scenario. It says, a young woman, a young married woman, went alone to see a movie without informing her husband. When she returned home, her husband said, if you do it again, I will beat you black and blue. She did it again, and he beat her black and blue. Now, if you ask that in an American classroom, Hopefully, 100% of the kids would say, that's not okay, that's totally not right. You ask them in India, that's normal. Who's right, who's wrong? How do we define good and bad? Now, you're probably like, oh, Trey, it's clearly bad. But once again, we're being the judges. Now, I agree, it's bad. I'm not saying I'm not, that's not bad. But the point is, the point is, people think it's so easy to just say, we're all just all going to fight for common good. Your good might be bad for someone else. That means that we have to have a bar of truth that we believe is right. And you're not going to get it with your own opinion. You're not going to get it with a president. You're not going to get it with the United Nations 
or the people who don't want to be a part of the United Nations because they think that they're bad. Do you think ISIS thinks that, that we are good? They think they're good. How, I mean, so just think about it at a massive scale. Humanism is a great idea, but it's, it's just terribly impractical. It's, and, and you can't dodge the question. And, and so I, I took the tangent on that because I, I want to show you that sin is a much bigger deal than we realize and you can't avoid it. And you might think it's not as big of a deal or maybe you just really think, like, I'm not that bad. Like, I do way more good than I do bad. But you're going to see in Matthew that Jesus, as he comes, he is going to be profound in the way that he approaches sin. And the first thing that Matthew really talks about is Jesus is he's going to come and he's going to do away with all of that. And he's not only going to do it for his people, he's going to do it through his people in such a way that all of humanity is restored to the original intent that God had for us. Yahweh saves. Verse 22 and 23 this all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. If you're reading in a text Bible, it's probably bold or like italicized. It says, look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Nick saying God with us. That was great. It's perfect if you're wondering. Um, Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 7, 8, 8, and 10. I'm not going to turn there, but you can look. Another thing that's brilliant about Matthew is he, he, he pulls in so much Old Testament prophecy that it is unbelievable. You'll just become overwhelmed by the amount of things that he's quoting and, and alluding to and referring to. But he, he quotes it straight up here. He says, look, so these Jewish people are like, oh yeah, we know that. Oh, this is, this is it? This is the one? This is, and, and, they, and he's saying that verse. They already know it. And he says, it's God with us. Now, once again, is it God saving or God with us saving? Emmanuel, God with us, once again, Matthew is showing, and through God, that, that God with us means that he is being with us in humanity. That, that it's so beautiful to think that God is not just up top doing things, and then he's done with us, and he does what he needs to do, but he comes down in the form of a man, and he lives a life among us. And we'll talk about that more, but um, I want to kind of get moving here. The last thing, the last kind of little jab I want to take is that people, um, no, one really, no one really argues the validity or the historic presence of Jesus because he was a character he's written in several historians at the time. It's whether or not he was who he said he was. Was he divine or was he just a human or a lunatic or whatever, right? People argue about that, but a lot of people who are atheists and agnostic even argue that Jesus was a great moral teacher. They say, well, he had great principles, and that's what Matthew's about. It's five brilliant teaching opportunities that he puts in this book. But you can't really say that because he's a great moral teacher without believing that he is divine because how can someone who says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and God what's God's, but then also say, I am one with the Father? You can't like take the things he says in morality and then not take the things that he's claiming divinity, he's claiming oneness with the Father, he's claiming to be the Son of God. You, can't, you just can't do that. He's either a lunatic and he's saying that and he's crazy and you can't trust anything he's saying and he's unstable or he really is who he says he is. And so Matthew, when he elevates his character, he's, he's doing this in such a way that Jews and even us see this beautiful picture of Jesus and he's not a lunatic and he's not crazy. He's profound. And, and when we read his, some of his teachings, we're going to get into one of my favorite little passages of the Sermon on the Mount. It's his beautiful teaching that he gives, uh, really just flipping everything we know upside down. And you read it, and if you've ever read it, 
It's incredibly high bar. In fact, he takes what the bar was that the Israelites fail, 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 couldn't do. And then he just like does this. He's like, yo, we're just going to take that up about 10 notches. And then at the end of his sermon, he says, be perfect like my father who is in heaven. Then you're like, okay, well, that's even higher and even more impossible. And what is he getting at here? That's why you can't say he's a great moral teacher because we can't do that. Like we, we, we're not capable of meeting the standard that he has. And the reason why he does that is because he is the fulfillment of that. He walks that life on earth shows how it's done, and then takes a sacrifice for us, knowing when we, when we can't do it, that we'll be saved. And I, I just, I think about, as we read Matthew, that what he's saying is, is hard. It's incredibly hard. It's almost, it's impossible. But what he's doing and what he does for us is what makes it so beautiful. And, and we're going to get to see that throughout this whole book, but I, I want to close with this. Uh, at the beginning, he had said that he is dying for the sins of his people, for Israel. But then turn to the last page of the book in Matthew, Matthew 28. This is the end of Matthew, verse 16. Um, I'm just going to read it. So the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain Jesus had designated. This is after he resurrects. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you, God with us. God is for the Israelite people, dying for their sins, also for all of humanity. And at the end, he brings it all full circle, and he says, I am still with you. God is still with us today. Emmanuel is still a promise that we live through, and we believe today that God is with us and for us yesterday, today, forever. And, and he commissions us to, to believe in this Yahweh saves for his people. And so the thing I just want you to reflect on, I want you to go home feeling like just, just wrestling with is, is am, I actually, am I actually believing in this? Am I believing God with us? Am I believing that, because people saw him after resurrection. It says some worship and some doubted. They're a part, they go to the mountain. They're like, yeah, I still don't, still don't buy it. Are you that in that camp? Because I just want you to just sit with that tension for the rest of these, the, Matthew, because it will blow you away at the beauty of who Jesus is and who, who, who he truly is and not who we think he is. There's a big, big difference. And so I want you to ask yourself, am I in or out? Where am I at? Do I have doubts? If you have doubts, it's totally okay. We all have doubts. We're here for that. But ask yourself, why? Why do I have doubts with Jesus? Why do I have trouble with some of the things he says and so, whoever you are, we're going to continue to reveal this character, Jesus, and we're going to reveal him in such a way that the word of Matthew is given to us, not the things we want to hear, but the things he'll tell us. I guarantee some of you are going to be mad at some of these messages, and I'm really excited for that. Send me an email. We'll talk about it. It's great, because if I'm not upsetting you, we're doing something wrong, because this is a really hard book to follow. It is. So as we close, I want to invite the band up. Uh, we, we offer this every Sunday. There's some in the back if you haven't grabbed one. This is juice and bread, and this is just a reminder of, uh, of Jesus, Yahweh saves, saving us. This is his sacrifice for us, and so we take this as a reminder for those who follow him that this, this places us back, uh, reminding us of our sin and need for him, and it, it moves us to a place of just repentance and humility. And so um, as, as we take this, I just encourage you to reflect uh, on this, and we're going to give you about a minute to take it. You can take it on your own at any point, and then we're going to close in one song. 
Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.